Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, where Paul read for us earlier. And before we get into our study, Mary said she did some research on the name Leah Decia, and um, she remembers where she was and when it happened. Well, I did the, the same thing this week. I wanted background information on the history of Laodicea, so I started doing some research. Well, if you are with us, again, I really want to encourage you to get involved with uh, Wednesday evening so you can see how directly the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel come together. And um, if you were here last uh, Wednesday evening, we were in Daniel chapter 8. We were studying the two kingdoms of the Medo-Persian Empire um, being replaced by the Grecian Alexander the Great. And it goes into quite a bit of detail with Alexander. It talks about um, uh, the four horns being broken. And then one little horn came up after them. And of course, when Alexander died at the age of 32, his four generals took over the world empire. And um, out of one of them came out this little horn. And this guy's name was Antioch Epiphanes. And he's the guy who went into the temple in Jerusalem, poured swine broth on the vessels, and he put um, a statue of Jupiter in the temple. And for that reason, we read that the temple was defiled for 2,300 days. And so that was all fresh in my mind, Antioch Epiphanes and the Antichrist. And um, so then I started doing research for this study this morning, and what I like to do usually is get some background on, you know, what's it known for? Where did, where did its name come from? So when I was researching the name of Laodicea, I found out it was named after a woman whose name was Laodice. Actually, she was Laodice IV. And her husband is Antioch Epiphanes. That's what I was hoping that the response I would get because that's the response I had. I mean, what are the chances? Uh, Antioch Epiphany's wife was Laodice the fourth, and his Antioch Epiphany's mother was Laodice the third, and that's where we get the name of Laodicea. You know, when I say the Lord is involved in the big things and the little things, that makes my day because I know I had nothing to do with that and I just didn't stumble across it. The Holy Spirit has us right where he wants us to be as we're going through God's word right now. Right, right down to little treasures like that. I call them golden nuggets. So as we look at the church of Laodicea, uh, this, is, this week we'll finish the second division of the book of Revelation. Again, the key verse, if you're here for the first time, is chapter one, verse 19. Um, John is told to write that things that he has seen, chapter one. The things that are, are the seven letters to the seven churches, and then the things that'll be after the church age. And um, we're gonna take a little break because between um, the the second and third division, and next Sunday I have something very special that I wanna share, where I talk about, we'll be sharing Uh, what I believe is inclusive evidence of what's really happening that Mary did a good job along with Russ Miller. 
uh, this morning. But let's go to, to the last church, the introduction. Laodicea was a place of great wealth of commerce and of Greek culture. It was a place of science and literature. It boasted an excellent medical school, which again was very primitive and actually very heathen. Laodicea was also the center of industry with extensive banking operations. Cicero held court here. It is said that he uh, brought notes here to be cashed in this city. Jupiter, or Zeus, was the object of worship in Laodicea. Now, the seven churches, every one of them, the Lord would choose a different title of himself to describe the condition of that particular church. And as we look at verse um, uh, 14, 1a here, he says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, and that'll be the first part, and then I'll go into the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So every church has a different title. Here, the title in 1a is, the Lord calls himself the things, these things says the amen. This is the only place in scripture where amen is a proper name, and it is the name of Jesus. In Isaiah 65, if you're taking notes, verse 16, it reads, the God of amen. In Isaiah 7, 9, the word believe is amen. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20, we read, for all the promises of God in him are yea and amen unto the glory of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the amen. He has the last word to say. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who is going to fulfill all the promises. And he lets the Laodiceans know this because this is the church that has rejected the deity of Christ. The word amen is the only thing uh, that he draws out of the vision of himself uh, that he had in the first chapter. Now, unless I forget to, to bring this up again, as we look at church history, there's of the seven churches, we made a point that there would be four in existence when Jesus comes again. And if you look back, I'm referring to Thyatira, Roman Catholicism, Sardis, dead Protestantism, Philadelphia, the born again Bible teaching um, church that was promised because they kept the word of God, they'll be kept from the tribulation. In contrast to that, we have the church of Thyatira with false doctrine saying unless you repent of the doctrines of Jezebel, I'm gonna put you in the great tribulation. And then uh, again, we made the point that these represent, I believe, different periods of time in church history. And so here we are, um, if, if we hold to that analogy, now we're talking about Laodicea, a church um, that will be one of the four. So what have I said thus far? When we use the word Christian, and we say, well, I go to a Christian church, my question is, what kind of Christian church? Are we talking Thyatira? Are we talking Sardis? Are we talking Philadelphia? Or are we talking Laodicea? And what we're, ha- we're seeing 
such a falling away, but this is foretold, and we'll get into this when we talk about the rapture, the falling away, the apostasia in the times that we're living. And actually, we're going to see that it's, it is actually very, very nauseating to the Lord because of the verbiage that the Lord is going to use here. The second part, part B of, of chapter four, uh, 3, verse 14, is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The faithful and true witness. Uh, this reveals that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the one who re- will reveal all and tell all. This is the day Christ alone is the one who will reveal all and tell all. This is the day when it's very difficult to hear truth, especially right now. We certainly don't get it through our news media. Good place for it, amen. <laughs> um, we're basically getting brainwashed. Today, who, who can we believe? There is one thing we can believe. This change is not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the faithful and true witness. And this is a title that he's using for himself as he addresses this lukewarm church called Laodicea. So, 15, again, he says this of all the churches that he knows their works. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Mary did an excellent job showing the complacency, uh, the apathy, the mediocrity that we see in the church at large. Now I thank the Lord because, and again, I gotta be careful here that without leaving the impression that Calvary chapels are the only church in town. That's simply not the case. There are good Bible-believing churches all over the world, but we are now in a minority. What did it say about Philadelphia? You have little strength. I mean, I think that means little in numbers. They weren't necessarily a mega church. The mega churches, I'll be referring to Joel Olstein in just a moment here. It has the largest church, roughly 50,000 people, um, that attend, attend his church. Um, but he was out marching, I heard this week. They weren't open, so he was out marching with the, uh, the lawlessness movement and being a part of that. I'm getting, getting ahead of myself there. So, uh, to my judgment, this middle of the road position is the worst kind of hypocrisy there is. 2 Timothy 3.5 tells us they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. Just turn away from them. This is a condition of much of the church today, unfortunately. It is a condition of a great many so-called fundamental conservative churches. But thank the Lord, there are many who have not come under this classification But the thing that is absolutely startling and frightening and fearful is that he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. In other words, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Does that sound to you like the church that's going to be raptured? I don't think so. If we're gonna find out here in a minute, the Lord is on the outside trying to get in. And they are Christian um, by name only. And the verbiage here of 
being nauseated. Everybody knows what it's like to be nauseated. And you just want to get out the nausea. <laughs> and so you vomit. Or spew is the word that's, that's used here. Um, you know, when it's hot, you want your drink ice lemonade cold. And when you're cold, you want your hot chocolate or coffee, you want it hot. But the lukewarm stuff just doesn't satisfy. It's disgusting. So when you're thirsty and cold, you want it hot. And when you're hot outside, you want it, you want it cold. But lukewarm just doesn't cut it. Verse 17, but you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. As we said earlier, uh, Laodicea represents one of the four churches that will be in existence in the last days. And it's not just the social gospel that we have in view here, but it also is the prosperity gospel that we have in view here. Because they're more concerned with their riches than they are about their relationship with the Lord. And so, and again, in order to um, make a statement like that without naming names, um, you wouldn't know who to look out for. I'd, if I told you, make sure, be careful, look out for the prosperity teachers. Um, they got their hand in your pocket and they, they want what you have, bottom line. And they'll go to any means, lying, whatever, to get, get that. So this morning again, I'm going to name names. I can't name them all. I'll maybe name seven or eight. Um, I actually went online and looked at the top 10, uh, Googled it in top 10 prosperity teachers. Um, number 10 is Joyce Myers. Uh, net worth 9.5 million. Um, she has a $10 million private jet, multi-million dollar complex. And... Um, uh, she's the only one in the prosperity teachers that is a woman. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, uh, the scriptures, this is not a gray area, biblically when speaking, about women being pastors. It's not gray at all. It's black and white. And uh, yet, she is the only one who calls herself a pastor. Uh, somebody got upset with me when I brought her name up last time because I said she was a prosperity teacher. And I got an email and said, oh, no, she's not. I got all of her books, and, and, um, and uh, she is not a prosperity teacher. Well, I usually don't respond to emails, and I didn't to this one either. But Joyce Myers is a prosperity teacher. And her annual net worth is $9.5 million, um, And she does have her own private jet and a, a multi-million dollar complex um, uh, in where she lives. All right, so see if I get some more emails for that one. <laughs> T.D. Jakes comes in at net worth of $18 million. Um, Mary mentioned uh, Rick Warren this morning with his peace program. Uh, he was called America's pastor at one time. Um, Saddleback in California, he, his net worth is $25 million. Suffolk Dollar, $27 million. He's got a couple of Royal Royces. He's got his own uh, private jet from Gulfstream. Uh, Joel Olstein, he's worth about $40 million, Largest church in America. Very social. Never talks, to, always positive, always happy, always clappy. I think he should be in a cover of GQ myself. 
I think he just got one of those kind of smiles, you know. Um, but I don't think he should be in a pulpit. And uh, Larry King actually called him out when he was interviewing him one time. And Larry King, of course, is a Jewish man, not a Christian. But he says, you don't talk about sin. Why? Larry King is asking Joel Osteen why he doesn't talk about sin. And he says, well, you know, people need to be encouraged. And you know what? People do need to be encouraged. But they need to hear the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If Hawking was up here, he would say they need to hear the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, (laughs) period. And what you get is a sermonette for Christianettes. I call it cotton candy theology. It's nothing but fluff. You try to take a bite, there's no substance to it. There's no meat and potatoes in that. It makes you feel good. And um, again, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. You know, there's, there's a, people out there that'll try to pour condemnation on you. That's wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is just to teach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse and trust that the Holy Spirit is able to speak to people's hearts and that he will minister to you. Um, well, I need to change this or I need to stop doing that. Oh, yeah, but the Lord will do that in his time. But to get up here and um, preach against smoking cigarettes, you're not gonna hear me do it. One guy was uh, smoking cigarettes after a service and one of our elders at the time went outside and looked at him and he said, you know what the Bible says about smoking cigarettes, don't you? He goes, no, I don't. He goes, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) He was looking looking for for the uh, condemnation Instead, you know, the guy was wise enough um, to say, don't worry about it. You know, if that's an issue that the Lord wants to deal with, he'll deal with it. And I'm not going to try to play Holy Spirit in these areas. Matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite. We're not to judge in in, uh, eat or drink. That's the Lord's job. And uh, that's what the scriptures teach on that. I'm getting out of my notes. I left off with Betty Hinn. No, I'm coming up to Betty Hinn. He's next at 60 million. Um, Pat Robertson, 100 million. And the one who is the wealthiest, and we really can't pin down, but they, um, the best we can find out is somewhere between 300 and 750 million dollars. That is worth. The Church of Laodicea, um, we call that the word faith movement. Word faith means there's power in your words. So don't ever make a negative confession because it'll come to pass. Well, it's not biblical. I'll give you one example. We were in men's prayer and we're reading um, Saul chasing David. And one time David made a negative confession. Saul almost had him. And he says, I know this day that I will die by the hand of Saul. That is a negative confession. And it did not come to pass. And to say that makes you God and God Santa Claus, because what you say is what you get. So be careful what you say. Well, that is basically the prosperity teacher's word faith. There's power in your words. So, sow your seed of faith money here. And God will bring it back to you, he says, a hundredfold. And this personally bothers me because... Um, 
Um, it has turned so many thinking people away from the Jesus of the Bible. They, they can see through this. I mean, the, the high school kids can, can turn on TV and watch these guys and go, Dad, are you really buying this stuff? Don't you see that he just wants your money? And um, gullible, talk about being gullible. You know what my dad says to people um, with the word gullible? And I, this is me being a Doville this morning, but I blame my dad for it. Um, if he feels somebody's being gullible, he'll go up to him and say, do you know that the word gullible isn't in the dictionary? And the person will go, it's not? <laughs> Think about it, you'll get it eventually. <laughs> I miss my dad, but I'm, but I'm gonna see him again. So what does the Lord teach? Laodicea represents the social gospel. That's been pointed out this morning. But it also represents the prosperity doctrine. And it only really works in America. Doesn't work too well in Haiti, does it, Bastia? <laughs> it's good to have Bastia with us. Let's turn to Luke chapter 12 and see what Jesus has to say and find a balanced perspective on money. Luke chapter 12 Verse 13 is the rich fool. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take heed, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So I said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there I will store my crops and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and not, is not rich towards God. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. And here was one who, I had a friend For years, his dream was to work so he could retire. Um, He was a businessman in town here, so he could retire up north. And whenever we'd get together for lunch, all I could say, I got this much time before I can retire, and then it's up north. Um, The month that he retired is the month that he died of a heart attack. And what he'd been living for and hoping for, all that was for nothing. And so we have this teaching here, just turn a couple pages to chapter 18, and we have the story of the rich young ruler. Um, Chapter 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but that one is God. You know the commandments. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, well, all those I've kept from my youth. So in order to get the guy's attention, Jesus, when he heard these things, he said, well, you still lack one thing. I want you to sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who are, have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this really set the disciples back because they said, well, who then can be saved? Because what you just said is impossible. And he said these things, uh, but he said the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, as a very young believer, and I mean very young, um, uh, I read this verse where it said, um, give up all that you have and then you can um, enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I thought nobody does that, but the fact of the matter is I knew people that did do that and they were part of Calvary Chapel's communal houses. Um, people my age, young, um, I think I was 20, maybe 21, somewhere in there. And I read this verse, and I saw people actually doing it. And my best friend at the time, um, Pat Gawhan, just talked to him a couple days ago, um, missionary to Africa right now, has been for years. But um, I got saved before he did, and he didn't want anything to do with me. He just thought, Dwight, you are crazy, just leave me alone. That's my best friend. <laughs> And then he got saved. And his testimony, for those of you who know, it's just over the top, Pat's testimony. So what he did before I did, instead of going to graduate school, which was on his list, he went into Shiloh. He gave up everything. And now I'm wrestling and I'm reading this verse right here. And um, the Lord told me to give it all up and go and follow him. And I remember fighting with him for nine months over this issue. And I finally said, and it was because of Pat, I went to visit him one time. And um, I thought, if I do that, here's the deal. Lord, I love to travel. If I give my life to you, I'll never get to travel again in my life. (laughs) I've traveled the world, I can't tell you how many times. And the other thing was giving everything away Well, I had a Martin 12 Sting D35. And um, I justified that because I said, I could use that in ministry. So I took that with me along with my Bible and I became a part and I ended up in the Minneapolis house. The pastor of the Minneapolis house really liked my guitar. Um, And he was always asking if I could play it. The Lord tapped me on his shoulder one day and said, I thought you said you're going to give it all up. And he wants your guitar. I want you to give it to him. Well, that didn't sit easy with me. And I said, I wrestled with it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. 
And I got my guitar in my hand and I'm going down the stairs and then the Lord says, no, I'm just testing you. And I said, get behind me, Satan. That's sort of one of those sort of things. And I thought, maybe it really is the Lord. Maybe it was just a test. So I, I did this. I went in my pocket, took out a coin, and I said, heads is his, tails is mine. How's that, Lord? I flipped, the co- I flipped the coin over my Martin 12-string D35. Came up tails, praise the Lord. <laughs> and I have it till this day. And um, that's a true story about wrestling with this verse. It's more of an attitude of the heart. Are you a steward over the things that God has given to you? Or you are the church of Laodicea and it's yours. Or you're the rich man, this is mine. And it's not an issue of, uh, and, and we'll go there in just a second. Let's go back to Revelation. Um, left it off in verse 18. The Lord gives them counsel. I counsel you to buy for me my gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Well, they had a perspective of themselves. The church of Laodicea said, I am rich. The Lord's, that was their perspective of themselves. But the Lord says, you're not only not rich, but you're poor, blind, and naked. Their perception of themselves was they were rich. The Lord's perspective of the church of Laodicea is that they were poor. And they never really went through difficult times of trial that's a necessary part of being a Christian. Good place for an amen. Trials are, and chastising are a necessary part of the Christian life. And here the Lord says um, uh, to them in 18, uh, he talks about being re- refined in the fire. Um, Let's go to, yeah, verse 18. His counsel was, as gold is refined in the fire. And I'll tell you what came to mind. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is talking about trials. Picking up verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Now, uh, we're rejoicing In this you greatly rejoice because the Lord's gonna take us home. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, notice, by fire. And this is what he said to them. This is my counsel, Church of Laodicea. You need to be tested by fire. You need to... Your life is way too easy. And um, you need to be refined of those impurities that only can come through uh, the, the trials of our faith. That it may be found for glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to verse 19. And he tells us, As many as I love, I rebuke and chastise Therefore, be zealous and repent. He wants them to repent of their self-sufficiency and their, and their wealth um, being put above the Lord. So he gives them the instruction to be chastised. 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, we have, picking it up in verse 5, the importance of chastising. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For the Lord loves, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if you endure the chastising, God deals with you as a son. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? But if you're without chastising, Laodicea, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The church of Laodicea was Christian in name only. They were without chastising. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For indeed, he for a few days chastised us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And over time, in going through the trials, um, the, the cleansing that the Lord wants to do, he does in his own way and, and time. Now note, chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous nevertheless. Afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness who those, notice, who have been trained by it. Trained by what? Trained by going through trials. Oh, we're going through a trial. Praise the Lord, I'm going through a trial. <laughs> no, we don't say that. But when we go through, through it, we see there's been a cleansing that the Lord has done, a little bit more like, a little less like me, and a little more like the Lord. And that's what he's doing. He's transforming us. He calls us living stones. He's building a spiritual temple that he is going to create for himself what he calls his bride. And he's making you beautiful. Now we're told in the Old Testament that God looks, man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. So if he wants you to be his bride, he's working in you, transforming you into something very, very beautiful from his vantage point. All right, let's finish it up this morning. Left off, left off with verse 19. 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. We use this verse when we're witnessing to people. And we're explaining to them that the Lord wants to come and dwell inside of you so you can have fellowship with him. Where is the Lord with the church of Laodicea? This scripture is talking to the church. The Lord is on the outside and he's trying to get in. If you hear, you hear what I'm saying, Laodicea, and you open the door, I'll come in. If you receive the exhortation of changing your mentality when I rebuke and chastise you, be zealous and repent. If you do that, he says that I'm more than willing and wanting to take you in and I can come in and have fellowship with you. Um, the last verse is the promise. All the seven churches have different promises given to them. 
if they listen to the Lord and do what he admonished them to do, he says this will be what happens. Verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Sometimes I think there should be a selah after verses. Uh, We've been studying the life of of David at men's prayer. And yesterday was talking about all of his mighty men. and, And I got, my mind began to wander. And I thought, you know, these guys knew David. And they became like David. When they started out, they were in debt, in distress, destitute, depressed. But they, in reading uh, through the word, we're finding out that now they're called David's mighty men. Well, they became mighty for one reason. They hung out with David. But it's not how he found them. He found them destitute, depressed, in poverty, and he made them into men. And as my mind wandered, I thought, you know what? I'm gonna see David someday. And I really am looking forward to that. I'm gonna see King David someday. I wanna know this guy. He's a man's man, he's a musician's musician, and he's a writer's writer. He wrote half of the Psalms that are there. So he's all of the above, throw in a mighty warrior, okay? I wanna meet this guy. And the heavy thing about it is, I know I'm going to. But what's even heavier than that, is it okay to say heavy, I'm a 60 type, someone's 60, okay, good. No, I'm gonna see Jesus face, face to face. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. David is one thing, a lot of respect, a lot of admiration, but he's not the king of kings. And he's not, and he's not going to be my groom. But I'm gonna see Jesus someday, and so are you. This ends, concludes, after the promise, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This concludes the message to the seven churches. These are the things which are. Um, chapter one, verse 19. And they have been very important. Um, if we are members of his church, we are also members of his body, a part of that great company, beginning with the day of Pentecost and coming down to the present hour, those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. We have seen these seven churches blocked off into very definite periods of time, Laodicea being the one we're living in now, and they are largely fulfilled. I believe that the period of the last four churches um, will be around when Jesus comes again. This is the, the church represented by Laodicean church, which is moving farther and farther into apostasy. There's also the church which is straying, um, staying in the word of God, uh, represented by, um, again, Philadelphia. Uh, this is the church that will be raptured. The other churches have tremendous organization, including the denominations. All of those which profess to be Christian churches but which have long since departed from the word of God and from the person of Christ. This is a division that exists in the church. One church will be raptured and the other is going to go through the great tribulation. And again, that should, the thought of entering that should strike fear in any person's heart. 
And if it doesn't, it's because they don't have really any idea what that period of time is all about. But let's leave it on this thought. Uh, We love him, though we haven't seen him. Yet we're rejoicing because we know, just as I'm gonna see David, we're gonna see the Lord someday, face to face. Not only that, the promise here is we're gonna sit on his throne. I'm not gonna change that. I'm just gonna look forward to it. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we finish up this division of the book of Revelation, uh, we thank you um, for these seven letters and how they pertain, some parts of it, to all of us. Of course, Lord, we want to be Philadelphia, maybe little in strength, but we want to keep your word. And we certainly want to be kept from that hour of trial which is to come upon the whole planet. The world's gone crazy, Lord, and we thank you, Jesus, this morning for the soundness of mind and peace that comes knowing that you've told us these things ahead of time so that when we watch them unfold, we can rest assured that you have a purpose and you have a plan for your bride. And we thank you so much for that stability and hope that it brings to our soul and our heart and our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.